Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Only Gas Elevate podcast. Eric, how you doing, my friend? Doing awesome. How about yourself? Uh, you know me, man. I'm just living the dream as always. Excellent. So we, we've talked about transition. We've talked about evolution in these different areas. Today, we have an entire episode dedicated to wind. And I, and I know I joked with you about, it makes me think of the old Bob Dylan and Tom Petty song. But I, this is also, to be serious, this is one of the big two players in the alternative or, or renewable energy world. And we have a lot of misconceptions and a lot of things we don't know about it. So I'm anxious and excited to get talking about this entire thing. Yeah, 100% agreed. And it's more than just wind. It's, it's about a partnership between wind and oil and gas. And so I'm excited about that. So with that, we're going to do the talking point segments with Rob Erickson. We're going to get a little about the basis of what wind is about, as well as what's going on now and in the future. So excited about the case study part with Martin Shell Olson from ABB. We're going to talk about the largest floating offshore wind project in the world. And then we got an inside segment with Danielle Higman from Equinor here in the United States and talk about her transition, her journey from traditional oil and gas to wind as well. And with that, let's jump in. All right, so welcome to the Talking Point segment. We have Rob Erickson from Boscalis coming on the podcast today. Eric, we've, we've talked about alternative energy. We just got done having this amazing conversation with ABB and with everybody else. Tell us, when, when you hear about offshore wind, what do you think about? You know, being in Texas, when we hear about Offshore wind or wind generally, we, we think about and we get, we get beat up a lot about this idea. Does this really work? Is it intermittent? Does it really do the things we think it can do? And so I, I think there are some negative impressions there that I, I think are unfair. There are some technological challenges to be had, but I, I think there's a partnership and a future that can be found. Yeah. So let's jump into the talking point segment. So Rob Erickson began his career with Weissmuller Transport in 1992, which subsequently became Dockwise Shipping in 1994, who was then acquired by Boscalis Offshore Energy in 2014. So he spent 29 years with the company, and his last position was the Senior Vice President of Heavy Marine Transport. He's got a BS in Business Administration from the University of Utah. He's been married for 40 years, has a couple of grown boys, love golf, and loves to ride his Harley. And after talking to him, I was just like, I'm truly excited about getting Rob on this because he's a wealth of knowledge. And with that, Rob, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let's kind of start with the basics for a lot of people. Like, give us an idea. I mean, we hear about wind. We see the windmills. What's going on? What, what does a wind turbine really do for us? Well, you know, I'm really going to speak to offshore wind as opposed to onshore wind, although onshore wind is, is, is huge already worldwide. And, you know, I think, you know, Texas has got the largest amount of onshore wind of any state in the, in the, in the country. But Boscalis focuses on offshore wind, and we install offshore wind farms around the world mainly in the North Sea and Taiwan areas. And we're, over the last three or four years, have turned our focus to the northeast coast of the United States. And we currently have a little over $1.5 billion worth of uh, proposals outstanding for offshore wind construction on the east coast of the U.S. And if you double that, so about $3 billion in terms of proposals globally. So we're a major presence in the installation world of offshore wind. And, you know, it's 
I got involved in this and my entire career was oil and gas up until four years ago. And they asked me to transition to wind and I was nearing the end of my career. And I thought, okay, they're putting me out to pasture here. But <laughs> it turned out to be an extremely fun and dynamic uh, shift for me. And I'll confess that, you know, three years ago, my colleagues would come over from the Netherlands and we would go to these wind conferences. There'd be, uh, you know, 30 or 40, 50 people there. And everybody was like, eh, this might happen someday. But a lot of skepticism. But two years ago, I can say it just completely flip-flopped. And, and the trains left the station. It's going to happen. Companies like Equinor and what have you and Shell are all in with offshore wind. And it's a complete reality now. So it's very exciting. And it's, I can't think of another industry in the United States that's growing as fast as offshore wind. Right. And I love that you kind of brought, brought up your backlog numbers as we talk about a backlog in offshore wind that may have been zero just a few years ago. You're talking about billions and billions of dollars just for y'all on the kind of the transport and install side. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that skill set. I mean, you come from the traditional oil and gas and now you're putting in, in wind farms. I mean, that's a geographic transition for you guys. That's a skill set transition. I mean, how, how has that all played out over the last half decade or so? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Boscalis as a company was a dredging company for 100 years. And, and in 2000, they decided to get into offshore energy. And of course, that meant oil and gas. And, and so everything we've done since then primarily has been oil and gas related with all kinds of big projects around the world. But at the same time, they began to get into offshore wind installation in the North Sea in its infancy, which was 20 years ago. And it's just kind of gradually grown since then. And now we're one of the big four installation companies in the world. But, you know, the, again, the North Sea's been very busy. There's, there's around 5,000 turbines installed in the North Sea. The United States has five. So the Block Island Wind Farm off of Rhode Island has five turbines, a total of 30 megawatts of, of power. But there are, the Northeast states have committed to, I think it's 30 gigawatts of power over the next, you know, 15 years or so. And that's a huge multiplier. If you think one gigawatt of power is the equivalent of 1,000 megawatts, so it's just an enormous leap. And we're going to go from five offshore turbines now to something like 2,500 10 years from now. So it's just a, a huge leap. And the supply chain in the United States is poised to grow an extremely fast pace. And, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people and for companies in the United States to tag onto this industry and hopefully replace a lot of the oil and gas jobs that have been lost over the past years. So, so functionally, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the power that's generated, what is that? Can you give us an idea of the efficiencies or what, or how that plays out? Because it seems like, like you said, you're not just putting five out there. The plan is to put 2,500. Can you give us kind of give us a long-term effect of what that means from an efficiency and an energy and an actual application process? Well, I guess, you know, as the industry is evolving, there's a great demand. And I think the installation follows the demand curve in a way. If you look at the northeast part of the country where the population density is, is strong and they have old coal plants and nuclear, nobody wants coal anymore, nobody wants nuclear. The northeast people, they don't want people from Texas shipping them gas. So they're like, what are we going to do? Hydroelectric is difficult to deal with anymore. So the easy answer is to look offshore and say, let's get some offshore wind. And they don't have the onshore space for onshore wind farms that we do here in Texas. So it's a, it's a, it's a natural fit for the power grid there. And what you're going to see happen is the same thing that happened in Europe, which is the, the cost or what they call the LCOE, the levelized cost of energy, will go down as the efficiency and the economies of scale go up. So in the advances that are taking place right now in terms of the technology to get these wind farms installed at a cost-effective number 
are taking place rapidly. Although there are still investment tax credits and production tax credits in place in the U.S. to subsidize this, and a lot of people are very critical of that. Me too. But it's going to happen. It's sort of the will of the people kind of thing, and it's coming. But over time, I think this power will be more efficient than any onshore source. But it matter of time. I want to pivot back to something you touched on a little bit. You kind of talked about opportunity for people and industry. And, and it's obvious from, you know, going from five offshore turbines to 2,500, there is going to be a lot of opportunity. There's so much momentum. But wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this opportunity. You know, obviously, Pascalis evolved and transitioned and it went from dredging to that next level, involved in so many other things, including offshore wind. But talk a little bit about what you think from a people standpoint, from a corporate standpoint, these opportunities to, to really get involved in this business, whether it's reskilling existing people or it's repurposing the business, just your thoughts around that. Good question. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for jobs. And, and you know, some of the associations like the Business Network for Offshore Wind, I think they're predicting 80,000 new jobs in the offshore wind space alone over the next eight to 10 years. I'm trying to hire a business development guy in the Northeast right now, and I'm telling you, I'm swamped with applications. And most of them come from former oil and gas people saying, how can I transition into renewables? Because they see the future and trying to get rid of that roller coaster of the oil and gas business. But And the supply chain is growing. If you look at the fact that the United States has the Jones Act, which requires U.S. flag vessels to operate on in U.S. waters, okay? So... Our company has a lot of foreign flag vessels. We can come over and there's certain things we can do, but there's a lot of things we can't do. So we have to charter U.S. flag vessels to help us do our construction. A lot of those vessels that you need don't exist right now. So there's a tremendous push to get a lot of these offshore service vessels and wind farm installation vessels built here in the U.S. In fact, the first contract for that was let with Amphils down in Brownsville, Texas, last year to build a wind farm installation vessel. Dominion Energy in Virginia is funding it, along with CJAX out of Norway. That vessel is going to cost $500 million to build. So that creates a lot of jobs, just that one project. Edison Schwest in Louisiana is going to build some service and operation vessels in conjunction with Erstad. And you just see it starting to come for Equinor. They're doing a gravity-based foundation construction up the Hudson River in New York, creating new jobs. They're talking about now building a, a tower fabrication facility nearby as well. And companies like Siemens Gamesa that make the turbines and GE and Vestas are talking about building plants in the United States to build the actual turbines. So you see it starting to come to the U.S. and, and it's almost like it can't happen fast enough. Can you can tell us, you've mentioned the difference between offshore and onshore. And we, as you know, we're talking about, can you tell us a little bit about the, the energy efficiencies that you get by having an offshore platform and how much different that is from an onshore in terms of power generation? Yeah, all I can speak to, because I'm, I'm not an engineer, but I can speak to the size of it. So I think the average onshore turbine is something between two and five megawatts. And offshore turbines are ranging from five up to now potentially 15 megawatts. And if you take a 15 megawatt turbine, one rotation of the blades can power a house. So, you know, one 15-megawatt turbine can power 20,000 homes, I believe it is, and, and you multiply that by hundreds and hundreds, and it really starts to add up. So, and the blades on a turbine like that are 850 feet up above the water for the, the hub height, and the blades are 110 meters each, so a football field, end zone, end zone, each blade. The monopile structures that hold that turbine up 
we're shipping them on some of our big heavy transport vessels and bidding on that. And, you know, they're 110 meters long. They weigh 2,500 tons, 10 meters diameter. They're just gigantic structures. Those are currently not made in the United States either, but there are, there's a company called EEW, a German steel company, that's committed to build a rolling mill in New Jersey to now start to fabricate those. So again, you see the job market start to grow. So one rotation of the, of the blade, yeah. that produces enough power to power a house. Yeah, one rotation. That's incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah, so the, the, the power efficiency is growing as the technology gets better and better. And offshore, as Daniela had mentioned, the wind profile is much better than it is on land. It's stronger and more consistent. So if you can go offshore and go up high, you can really tap into the power of the wind and the efficiency goes way, way up. Now, and then to speak to your your sort of model project that you're talking about, the high wind project in Norway, that's a floating wind farm. So floating wind is about five to six years behind fixed bottom wind, but it's projected to be over time bigger than fixed bottom wind, you know, as, as time goes on. And I'm sure it will be because that opens up all the world's oceans to potential use for offshore wind. You don't have to stick to an onshore shelf. Well, and you know, some of the resistance you hear about kind of some of the fixed offshore wind is I don't want to go to the beach and, you know, see a turbine, right? And, you know, this idea of being able to push something 100 miles offshore, maybe even get better, more consistent wind, get rid of some of the intermittency problems, it seems like. As this continues to scale out, more and more of a win-win situation, especially for the Upper East Coast. Yeah, that's right. I mean, nimbyism exists everywhere, not in my backyard. So, you know, the further off you can go, whether it's if it's out of the sight of land, you've, you've just won a victory right there. People can't see it. I mean, that was one of the big deals with the first wind farm off Martha's Vineyard. I mean, the people there just didn't want to see those things turning. And, I, and there, there's a Dutch guy I know who's come up with a scheme to paint the blades so that when they turn, they sort of visually disappear. It's kind of a trick, but you still, still see the tower. <laughs> you just see a big white stick. Yeah, it's just it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it always goes by too quick. Absolutely fascinating, Rob. Appreciate your time and just, just wish you the best of luck and thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody to go to Pascal's website. If you want to see big boats move really big things on some really cool videos, that's where you need to be. Yeah, yeah, and we're hoping to get some videos we'll share as well uh, as we get a chance to go down and visit in Corpus with, uh, from Rob's invitation. So we'll put that out there on the site as well. Definitely. And so with that, all right, so stay tuned. After the break, we'll get into the case study with ABB and Martin. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Today, Eric, we always talk about the energy evolution. We talk about pivot. We talk about how we can repurpose people. But what happens when companies, as we see, that are changing into what their, you know, kind of their main, their main premise or how they're known for? We see BP right now making huge strides around, you know, kind of almost kind of distancing themselves from the hydrocarbon world. And we kind of hear these things, but we don't, maybe don't always grasp exactly what that means. Yeah. One of the things we talk about all the time is this evolution, where we're headed. You know, you and I prefer the word evolution as opposed to transition. 
But one of the things I'm really excited about today is something that I think where the two hands come together and kind of shake in the middle. This is a really cool case study. You know, we're going to talk about a wind farm. We're going to talk about offshore production platforms for oil and gas and that partnership to make that all better for all of us. Right. It's, it's not an either or. These are, these are things coming together. So what we're doing today, we're talking to Martin Shell Olson from ABB, and we're going to discuss the High Wind Tampin Floating Wind Power Project, which was brought to us by Tori Brown. And I got to tell you, like you were saying, this is, this is amazing. And so before we start talking to Martin about this, tell you a little bit about him. He's the Vice President of Offshore Power for ABB Energy Industries. He's based out of Oslo, Norway. He's worked in the offshore industry pretty much his entire career, mostly with ABB in various functions, but he's done operations, marketing, sales, those areas. He spent a few years in investment banking and still stayed in the offshore energy deal area. He graduated in 2003 with a master's of science in international engineering management from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Trondheim. And he has a couple of kids and he also likes to keep busy by running. So that's a little bit about Martin. Martin, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. So I want to start kind of at the, at the, at the front of this. Give us an idea of you know, what was the motivating factors? What was the, the issue or the challenge that was brought out to, to make this project start, that got this project started? Yeah, all of us would like to re reduce emissions, of course, and offshore oil and gas production is a quite energy intense activity on its own and with its emissions, right? And in the past, you can address those by electrifying these assets, right? That's one way. And most of the projects in such regard has been with the power from shore, i.e. pulling a cable, high voltage cable from a grid somewhere and out to the platform. Now, alternatives come with integration of offshore wind and so on. So this really is what we're looking about, to integrate renewable power generation to an energy intensive offshore asset. So you see this opportunity and y'all step into this project and as all projects go and as all things go, there's going to be a couple of issues. Can you give us an idea as you went down this path of one problem that you expected to have and one problem that you didn't? Yeah, you know, I talked before this conversation with some of our engineers, of course, and we did expect some technical challenges. That's not a surprise, perhaps. For example, you know, you really have to spend some time to tune the frequency response of the gas turbine generators that will still be there to make them work in yeah, cooperation with the wind turbines and so on. So that was a lot of technical work and uh, benchmarking that needed to be, be done, right? But that is okay. But a more unexpected challenge, perhaps, is that you know, many of these guys that uh, develop it, they are actually the experts also in using the tools and providing the services and giving the advice to the customers and our clients. So as this tool got more popular, I mean, we saw striking the balance of developing the tool and using it to give advice. It's a tough one to address, right? But I, th I think we got it right. But th that was a little bit unexpected to me that the demand from the tool increased so much due to its popularity that uh, we have to do something there. So you've so you got through some of that. You're, the project is a, as a multi-year project. is It's rather vast. But tell us exactly what, what is it? Like, so we, we hear this, it sounds cool, you know, conceptually makes sense on some level, but can you really help us understand and paint a picture of what it is that this project is and does? Oh, yeah. And we'll hear from Equinor later, right? But offshore in Norway, you have yeah, quite a few oil and gas producing platforms, right? And they're typically powered with the gas turbines. Most of them, some have been electrified with power from shore, as, as we talked about earlier. In this instance, then, 
you would like to complement the power generated from the gas turbines with the renewable power from wind turbines. So for this case, you will integrate 88 megawatts of wind power to two existing oil and gas platforms at the Tampen area offshore Norway. So that is on the high level what it is about. So can you give a little bit of a comparison to that kind of power outage in terms of like, is that like how many homes or is that how much, I mean, from a power standpoint, I'm just kind of curious how that plays out. What is it? Oh, how many homes it is, but yeah, several thousand, I would say, right? So in the range of five to 6,000 or something like that from the top of my head, I can get, I mean, maybe that figure is a little bit off, but it's a small town, right? Gotcha. That's what we are talking about. Interesting. Oh, that's a great comparison. So then tell us now that so far, what is what is the application and the implementation of the project been like? What have you seen come from this now that now that it's out there? Yeah, it's very interesting, you know. I mean, I would like to speak to your question from the point of ABB. I mean, really addressing the integrity of the electrical system at these assets. So what we see now that we can much better than in the past simulate an electrical system with a mix of renewable and conventional sources into it. And that set, I mean, gives our clients actually the ability to study these alternatives that come to them at a faster pace and bring them to mature them and bring them to reality faster. So I think that is a big benefit to the environment, of course, because you can realize these type of projects in a quicker way, but also it's a good business opportunity for ourselves, of course. So we can provide some advice and services that our clients and the environment really value. And, and so we always try to you know, focus on and make sure that we, we explain how this impacts ES and G, ES and or G. So can you give us out of those three, which one kind of stands out to you as far as what this project applies to? Yeah, for sure. In isolation, the project itself, I mean, now it's not up and running, right? It's under execution. But we have done simulations of the systems on the long time series and in under different wind conditions. And we see if you run it optimally, and we have looked at what optimally could be, you can achieve yeah, CO2 emission savings in excess of 25% for this particular plant. So that is that side of it. But the larger story here, I think it actually opens up our industry for more type of projects like this. For example, now we see a similar case in the east coast of Africa, where the client is looking at integrating solar power to an LNG plant and so on. That's just one example. I think you can really, this is really a front runner in accelerating renewable integration to the oil and gas industry, which is a good thing. Martin, I think that one of the really cool things about this is just the technology behind it, right? And I want to make sure our listeners understand when completed, as I understand it, this is going to be the world's largest floating offshore wind farm. So it's pretty amazing. You're talking almost a hundred miles offshore in almost a thousand feet of water with Ocker building, if I got the numbers right, the floating holes that will hold the, hold the windmills weigh 8,000 tons each. And so it's just this huge engineering <laughs> yeah. and technology thing that we're accomplishing. And, and, then, and then to, as you, the word I think you use is, is critical, this integration with the oil and gas. But I want you to talk a little bit, so I just described some of the kind of the major engineering feats kind of on building the whole, the floating holes, right? But I want to talk, hear you talk a little bit about ABB and what you guys are doing in a thousand feet of water to connect this wind farm to these two platforms and kind of some of those hurdles and talk about 
Because I, I think you said the key, what the real key thing for me, what you just said earlier, is it's a front runner. We're learning how to do this so that we can build these large offshore wind farms in multiple places and integrate them. So I want to talk a little bit about ABB and how you guys are from an electrical side, integrating the platforms together and, and executing that. Because that, that, I think that's just really cool. Yeah, what ABB is really about in a broad sense is to electrify and automate both industry, utilities and transportation sectors, right? So in the latter, that could be mean simple things or in brackets like EV chargers. We are a world leader in providing those and so on, which are really a key for the electrification of the transportation sector. Then talking about industry here, which the oil and gas industry, I mean, we have been part of that through its beginning, right? Electrifying these assets, automating them, really putting a lot of work into making them a safe place, first and foremost, really, by automating maybe dangerous tasks, look at how you can operate, I mean, optimize operations, you can have a lower manning in yeah, not so nice places to be, etc., and so so forth. So it's about yeah, by electrifying and automating these assets, make them a safer place to be, but also a more efficient place to be. So that that is from a high level what we do at ABB. For this particular case, I mean, you can say it's a small component, but what we have done is to upgrade the power management system at the assets and also using simulation tools to look at first, how can you get the good concepts? You can really get the most out of the renewable power generation that you would like to integrate, i.e., I mean, you want to integrate as much as you can when the wind is blowing, but you also have to consider the integrity of the process itself and the integrity of the electrical systems. So there are all areas there technically that needs to be solved, but I think, yeah, by using our experience from doing similar type of things, both on land, but also to a large degree in an offer setting, we have managed to solve them in a way that is valued by the client, I would say. So on the electrical side, could you talk a little bit more about anybody in the industry knows the North Sea is you know, extremely difficult from an environment standpoint, has the potential for you know to be very, very challenging from an operability standpoint, no matter what you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the technology that's going into that platform from your side on the, electric, on the logistics and, the, and in terms of not only from to make it happen, but how do you plan long-term like for maintenance and just integrity and, and potential upgrades? How is that played out with in a project like this? Well, so one thing is to simulate the electrical system so it can, I mean, so you can integrate a lot of the wind power, right? So that's one thing. And you need to shed loads quickly when the wind is not blowing, etc., and ramp up the gas turbines fast to compensate and all of these things. But then on the operation side, which you ask about now, you really need to have a good picture of the condition of these various pieces. So we spend quite some effort in making sure everything is monitored, of of course, and communicate and the data is provided where it needs to be. But that's just the beginning, right? Then you have to really look at your maintenance scheme to see if that can be simplified, if you could do it less frequently or with less heavy marine operations and so on and so forth. So... A lot of elements go into making that as uh, optimal as possible, I would say. I mean, the gear itself, the electrical gear itself, that's not really the story here. It's more that you have a good idea of how it works in a changed setting and how you can constantly improve how you operate it. 
Martin wanted to talk a little bit about just kind of leadership and vision and, and some of that comes from Equinor, obviously some of that comes from ABB and others that are part of the project, but just talk a little bit about, you know, just, this is really the G to me, Sean, it's, it's the governance side, it's the leadership side, it's, it's the having the vision to say, hey, we need to partner with renewables. We need to make this work together. Just wanted to get your thoughts on, as you've been involved in this process from, from the very start to now kind of in mid-execution, just kind of your thoughts on the governance, leadership, and how and how these various and, and sometimes in competition businesses have come together and partner on this front. Yeah, you know, as you say, it's a partnership. You have to work together, right? But you need companies and actors that understand all the steps involved in the energy value chain, right? From primary energy generation to creating the optimal energy mix all the way to the point of consumption and, and sales. And it can offer, yeah an integrated portfolio of solutions and technology to match that. And so I think both Equinor, ABB, Arker, and many others are actors that really see the integrated overall energy value chain and have a company ambition of being truly players in the energy transition to bring us all to a world that is more sustainable in terms of energy use and consumption. So I think that that's really it's in the DNA of all the, all the partners here in this project, I would say. So, so to that around the partnership, how many, you just mentioned some with Auker and others. Can you kind of give us an idea of how many companies are in on this project overall? Well, I, I don't know exactly how many. I wouldn't guess quite a few, to be honest. I think it's better to leave that question to Equinor. They probably <laughs> have a better overview. So I don't really know. But what I can say, I would say that I mean, we work really well with most of the players. And I see, of course, it's fierce competition always in any business. But in the oil and gas industry, I've seen a shift really the last perhaps five, six years, not only in the now with the, with the COVID and the demand kind of disruptions last year and so on, but even before that, from a more partner and collaborative driven way of operating than on an individual basis. And one example there is that maybe that is not the topic of this talk, but we see more projects run in an alliance sort of way where you actually sit together early and share yeah, the burden and the games in a more, yeah, in a better way than just uh, subcontracting everything, right? So if you perform better, you every, all everybody shares the upside in a way and vice versa. Hopefully that will not be the case. And often we see that if you really build in that closeness, it creates trust and trust drives better results for the benefit of all. So can you just speak to that real quick? Because we, I think people try to do that within teams. They try to do that within companies. And then when you collaborate with other companies, it becomes that much, that much more difficult. What would you say, you said you felt a transition inside the oil and gas industry, not just to this topic, but to work together a little bit more. Do you have an opinion on what that what the catalyst was for that? Was you think it was part of it was just recognizing a need to have to do something different, or was it financial opportunity, or what? What do you think maybe was the big catalyst around that? I think first it was cost reductions, really, and that uh, was the first catalyst. But after that initial shock or push, if you wish, so actually, I think people actually saw that you can save a lot of duplicate work and really create more value if you work together and bring the best person for the job rather than 
the best person at your own company, right? So you you take the best wherever he or she may be, and then you you get it done. And that creates a lot of value. So, but first to your question, I think it was the cost was the driver, but then, yeah, people saw that actually, yeah, it's a good thing overall and we create a lot of value. And to kind of expand on that a little bit, you've used some keywords that Sean and I always talk about all the time, whether it's value creation, upside and that kind of stuff. You know, my understanding is this particular project for our U.S. listeners can cost about $500 million to implement. We, we always, you know, Sean and I always focused on return on investment. We want to, you know, accomplish things in the ESG space, but you've got to be sustainable to worry about sustainability, right? And so we always focus on the ROI. As you think about what it's cost to kind of run, and I realize this is, for lack of a better word, kind of a guinea pig project to see if we can really do this. But as you, as you look at the way this is execution in execution phase, so far, and we think about things like East Coast of Africa or the coast of the United States or whatnot, when we talk about return on investment, when you think about ABB and what, you, what you're hearing from Equinor and others, are you guys seeing this and going, hey, wait, this is, we're not there yet, but this is really going to work. This is really does save money. It really does help us on emissions. And this is something we're going to roll out around the world. I'm just trying to get your thoughts on ROI and vision for the future. Oh, definitely. I think, I mean, we don't own these assets, but we have been uh, part of it. And we we have developed our tools and spent quite a lot of time in software engineering and other types of developments to get it right and fit for purpose here. So uh, I don't know if I would like to go into details on the project margins per se, but I think what we see, and we talked about it earlier, that it has generated a lot of interest, both with Equinor for other types of products, but also with other players around the world, not only for offshore assets, but I said LNG as one example, and that, that could be more, right? Now, many industries around the world are, yeah, powered by gas turbines and they operate, yeah, in a microgrid or isolated grid. So it's actually provides the way for electrifying more of these assets, be it offshore or be it onshore. And that interest that we see, and it's really enormous interest for many, many players, it wouldn't have been there unless those players saw a value of doing it. So I think actually already now, it's a net positive in your financials, right? And then on to, to offshore wind specifically, if you see, look at the cost curve on a yeah, kilowatt hour generated basis for onshore wind, that has fallen dramatically. And it's cost competitive in most regions of the world, right? Similar thing has happened with bottom fix offshore wind. And you can expect uh, also, yeah, quite an analogous journey for floating offshore wind. Yeah, the cost per kilowatt hour generated here for this project, maybe is not competitive feeding into a grid, but for sure, it's cost competitive when you compare to what your electricity cost if you generate it with gas turbines in a small setting, right? So already there you get cheaper power, I would say, although I haven't seen the final figures, but our own analysis tells us that. And then in the future, floating offshore wind can also be cost competitive feeding into a grid. And we're really glad that Equinor is a front runner here and it's an important step in the journey for floating offshore wind to be a yeah, serious power generation alternatives in many, many places of the world. So Martin, so as we wrap up, I just want to ask you one question. As we mentioned, this is a multi-year, multi-stage project. Can you tell us what we should look out for in terms of what's coming in the next couple of years? Maybe some milestones to look and see this project continuing to bear fruit. 
yeah, you should look at the project, but you should keep your eyes open for similar projects in other places because I think they will pop up sooner rather than later, not only in Norway, but in other places of the world as well. So at least we are seeing them. So I think or we'll see them in the very short term. And I think that's a good thing for, for all of us. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Best of luck on the continuation of the project and as you move forward. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. And with that, Eric, we're going to go. We'll take a break. Stay tuned as we have Daniel Higman from Equinor coming up with a little bit of insight. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the inside segment of the podcast. Eric, we just got done talking to Martin over at ABB about this amazing project that's coming with this offshore wind. And we're going to get a chance to dive in and talk to Daniel Hickman from Equinor. But what kind of stood out to you from the last segment? What stood out to me is just the amazing technology and kind of the vision to kind of take this first step and say, hey, we may not be cost competitive in certain environments, but in other environments, we can be really cost competitive and at the same time reduce emissions in these particular areas. And so to have that vision kind of in Europe, you know, is really cool and curious to see, you know, kind of where the conversation heads now. Talk a little bit about maybe some U.S. things. Yeah. And, I th- you know, we love memes, you know, everybody likes to have memes that, that speak to truth or whatever. And I just keep thinking of that image of here's offshore wind powering a, an oil and gas platform offshore. And so it's kind of like, doesn't need any words, just kind of put it out there. It's like who, because we have this idea of this dynamic, it's either one or the other, us versus them. And yet here's renewable technology feeding the hydrocarbon technology. No, exactly. You and I talk about the big umbrella all the time. We talk about evolution, not transition away, but it's an evolution. It's a partnership. And I think this is a, an amazing example of it. Yeah. But we're really fortunate. Jamie Absher, who you all remember from our first episode, who's a friend of the show, when we put out a little thing looking for some help to under, get somebody on here to, to help us get a little bit more insight, as is the segment around this. And she, she sent me a name, Danielle Higman. And talked to her on the phone, and I was in a little bit about her history, which we'll talk about in a second. And I was just like, man, this is, she's like perfect to have on. And so before we get her to start talking, tell a little bit about her. She's a senior commercial analyst for the new energy solutions team at Equinor, formerly known as Stat Oil. There's still a few of us out there that are, 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 don't, don't make that connection, but if you remember Stat Oil, that is now Equinor. Her work experience is 11 plus years in the oil and gas industry, so she's like us in that sense. She worked as a consultant, consulting seismic data manager at various companies like Halliburton, Shell, Chevron, and Conoco. She's been with Equinor for almost six years, mostly working on the U.S. onshore operations, doing micro-seismic analysis and interpretation, as well as petrophysics. She started working on the commercial side of the Global Strategy and Business Development Group before transitioning into the WIND team. Her current responsibilities include real estate strategy and acquisition negotiations, including ROWs in New York City and in New Jersey for onshore substations, and investment tax credit leads for Empire and Beacon Wind projects. She's a Aggie. She's got a Bachelor of Science in Geology from Texas A&M, a Master's in Oil and Gas and Energy Law from the University of Oklahoma, which is where she met our friend Jamie. And she's a native Houstonian, holds a real estate license as a textile and fiber artist, which I'm sure we won't get into, but it's a fascinating. And of course, like my co-host, she loves raptors. F-150 raptors, just for everybody to make sure that's clear. And it was, I'm a huge fan that she's on the show today. 
So with that, Danielle, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So Danielle, as we get started, you know, we just heard the story from Equinor. What kind of stood out to you for some of the things that Martin said? Yeah, I mean, I really like how we can tie the, the renewables portion with the, the oil and gas industry that we all know so well. I mean, I really like that you don't, you use evolution instead of transition. I mean, I really think that that is where we're going. I mean, you see a lot of things, you know, you see that transition, but it's more important to view it as, as an evolution and really working together. I mean, we're all in this together. And like I said, don't fight it. It's not us versus them. This isn't, you know, this isn't Star Wars. It's not the light versus the dark <laughs> side as, as much of us like to, to think of. But it's really just working together and, you know, trying to offset emissions as much as we can while preserving economy and, and, and the industry as a whole, as an energy industry. You know, one of, one of the things Sean and I have talked about is, as we think about ESG generally, you know, it, it's farther down the road, I would say, in Europe than it is here. But, you know, things are evolving quickly here. And obviously, I'm not surprised that Equinor is, is leading in a space like this in the North Sea, finding ways to partner with renewables. But, you know, as you work for Equinor here in the United States, and I know most of the stuff of what you do is East Coast, but even thinking about Gulf of Mexico eventually, just wanted to get your thoughts generally around, you know, where we're headed kind of on this side of the pond and, and where you think things are going. And, and could we see partnerships like this in the near future with kind of U.S. local assets? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's one that I get more often than not is, you know, do we see any some do we see something like that happening in, in, in our backyard, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico? And the tricky thing about the Gulf of Mexico is it has the winds aren't as great as you would see like on the East Coast and in the North Sea. So, I mean, it's technically viable. It's just we're not anticipating any kind of lease sale to happen before 2030. So it's going to be some time before we see renewable activity in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, and, and you have to think about, you know, the East Coast, they don't have oil and gas platforms. They don't have those oil and gas leases, whereas the Gulf of Mexico is full of them. So it's about how do we want to integrate both worlds in the Gulf of Mexico. And I think it'd be a little bit trickier to do in the Gulf of Mexico than you would see in the North Sea. So, so is that to say that the offshore projects that will happen on the East Coast are strictly for power on land? Is that going to be their function? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, they're not deep sea. So there's a critical point here in the, in the water depth. So you're looking at around 60 meters is really the, the critical turning point of whether you can have a fixed bottom wind farm versus a floating wind farm. And obviously the floating wind farms are much more expensive. There's a lot more that has to go behind putting them together. And we're just not at that point yet in the U.S., not to say that we won't get there, hopefully quicker or, you know, sooner rather than later. But yeah, as of right now, I'm at the fixed bottom wind turbines is where you're seeing. And I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple thing. You know, you have a big lease area. I mean, and, the, and these lease areas are much bigger than you see in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, the oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico are 5,760 acres, whereas in the East Coast, the Beacon lease area is 130,000 acres. And Empire is around 80,000 acres. So you have these massive lease areas, which is great because you can put a lot of wind turbines. And it takes that amount of space to really generate good power to provide back to onshore. So, yeah, so you have these, these wind turbines laid out. I mean, and they do all kinds of technical studies with the wind. And, you know, to transition a little bit, another question I get asked often is, you know, I'm a geologist 
by background, so I have a lot of geology friends, obviously in the industry and, and from college is, you know, what can a geologist like me do for offshore wind? Is there a place for me in that world? And absolutely there is. I mean, we still do geo, we, we do still do seismic surveys. We do geotechnical surveys. We have to, you know, we look for shallow geohazards, paleo channels. There's all these things that still have to happen for the U.S. I mean, for the offshore wind versus, you know, oil and gas. So, I mean, there's definitely knowledge transfer there that you can take from oil and gas and apply it. So there, you know, not all hope is lost. <laughs> <laughs> there's still space for you. You just got to find find your niche and make your way in. But to, I mean, to go back to the, the actual offshore wind farm itself, I mean, yeah, you have these turbines that tie into an offshore substation using interarray cables. And then they have a really long cable that connects the offshore substation to the onshore substation. And those are called the export cables. And so part of, you know, my responsibilities, like you were saying, was to go around the onshore world and look for real property that is viable to build those onshore substations on. It's not just about the onshore substations, it's about space for also having batteries as well. So you talk about sustainability of the offshore wind farms is, you know, we need to have that battery storage and capacity as well. So it's it's a lot of things that play into, you know, where are we looking for a viable offshore substation property? I want to follow up on something you, you just touched on a little bit because I think it's important. A lot of our listeners, as, as we think about traditional oil and gas, are worried about employment, worried about opportunities. You go and look at some of the, the layoffs over the last year and are, will those jobs come back? But maybe just a little bit more on your personal journey as how you made that decision in your head. I know you spent time at Halliburton and then at ConocoPhillips and you're an Aggie. You were a real school... <laughs> old school oil and gas, right? To kind of how you went through that process mentally and thinking about that transition to something new and different and, and just how it's been for you and being, how you've been received. Yeah, that's a great, great question. I mean, I grew up, I'm a native Houstonian, so I grew up in the oil and gas world. You know, my mom worked for BHP for 28 years before she retired and she used to take me to, you know, bring your daughter to work day. And I would sit with the geophysicists and they would let me color horizons on the silent sections and that really just got me intrigued in geology and geophysics. And so that's what, from a very early age, I knew I'm going to go be a geologist. So here I am. I was, and I did a lot of technical work, mostly onshore. But, you know, as the industry started evolving, it just, I felt like I would maybe be in a rut. So I decided to take a big step and go back to school, working full time, and then getting my master's from OU. And I'm, I'm glad that that's over with. <laughs> but um, I mean, I, I'm so glad that I did it because it was a, allowed me to see the other side of the industry that I wasn't used to yet. I mean, the, the program really focused on, you know, the legal side, the environmental law, the land side of things. I mean, a lot of landmen would benefit from this program as well. Yeah. So most of my friends are geologists, like I said, and when I told them I was going back to school to get a master's in, in law, they were like, what? How are you going to use that? What, you know, what's the point? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like this is a perfect time to, to do something new, to try a new part of the industry. And I mean, they all thought I was a little crazy, but, you know, now they're coming back to me and going, wow, you were actually really smart to diversify your skills like that. And I'm not saying you have to go back to school and do something totally different to, to transition into the offshore wind world or any other renewable world. But 
it's just something to, you know, keep in mind. And there's all kinds of training sessions, you know, even here locally in Houston. I mean, if you Google, you know, how, you know, offshore wind Houston classes or, you know, I mean, there's so many opportunities out there to learn about the industry and really make yourself valuable. So, I mean, that, that's what I did. I took that opportunity to switch. And I mean, it's worked out for me. And I, I just happen to know really great people at the right times. And a lot of that comes down to knowing the right person at the right time sometimes. It's not about really what you know, it's about who you know. We all know that very well in the oil and gas industry. You know, and a lot of my driver too was the volatility of the oil and gas industry. If you worked in it for, you know, as, as long as we have and, and even longer, I mean, you've been there so many downturns and it's just such a wild roller coaster ride. And I was ready to get off, you know, so I'm, I'm really hoping that this offshore wind renewable world will provide a little bit of more of uh, stability and, and mental health and, <laughs> and, you know, not necessarily financial stability, but just, you know, you feel safe, job security kind of, you know, feeling. And I see it happening for at least next, you know, decade or two. And then who knows? But as of right now, I mean, I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty, pretty peachy on my <laughs> renewable tree. So, well, I tell you what, Danielle, we really appreciate your time coming on. This has been great. Appreciate the insight. And we wish you and everybody else all the best of luck going into the future. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was really great to meet you. And hopefully we can have another discussion. Yeah. Yes. All right. With that, Eric, we're wrapping up our, our big wind episode. Yeah, great episode. Again, I love the partnership story. I love the transition, whether that be in an industry or, you know, Danielle's own amazing transition into something new and different. So really great episode. Yeah, and we have to see partnerships and the rest of that stuff, which just gives us all hope. All right, with that, uh, thanks for tuning in and, and that'll wrap it up. Hey, everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for March 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, and the TAMU SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demand.
demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate.